At the time of Jesus, there was a great sense that the world was broken and the shadows were deepening. We sang a song that asked those questions, right? You see the world is broken, we do. Do you see the shadows or feel the shadows deepen? We do. There was a deep sense at the first century AD of the world being broken and shadows deepening. Uh, the Romans had controlled the region. There were all kinds of things that were being done that demonstrated the anti-Semitism of the time. Then there were people that were in charge of the Jewish aristocracy and the priesthood that were happy for the status quo because they had all the status. <laughs> and so they manipulated and took control and, and laid upon the people burdens that were too great to bear. It was in that sense then that things are going to be terrible and one of two things could save them, either revival or Jesus coming, the Messiah coming. There was a great sense of anticipation that maybe this was the era in which the Messiah would come. And there were, in fact, lots of false messiahs who arose around the time of Jesus that said, I'm him. And they would, there would be a group of people that would follow after them only to be disappointed. I think we live in a similar time, don't we, where we feel uh, the world is broken and the shadows are deepening. We uh, have this sense that while there may be some things that are okay right now, we have a sense that, man, apart from revival or the second coming of Jesus, uh, some horrific things could be in the offing for this world. It is just that kind of thing that the prophet Malachi is designed to address this morning. I invite you to open your Bibles to the last book of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi. And as we do that, we're going to see that he wrote at pretty much the same time that we had Ezra and Nehemiah. And he'll be addressing some of the similar issues that were confronting uh, the community of Israel. For example, uh, there was a failure to give to the Lord, which you saw in the prophet Haggai, and the effort to do the finishing work of rebuilding the temple in Ezra and rebuilding the walls in Nehemiah. You'll have a similar sense of that here in Malachi. Then you also will see this problem of marriages. Uh, you remember that in both Ezra and Nehemiah, people had taken up, they were living with foreign women. And I described that while the, our English translations describe it as marriage, it wasn't really marriage, it was more living with. And we will see that issue rear its ugly head here in Malachi. Uh, we're not sure exactly when Malachi prophesied. I've seen dates by biblical scholars that date all the way from 460 BC down to 420 BC. I have him stuck out there at the end of this timeline, but really there probably ought to be a question mark by his name and you could slide it up and down there uh, because it's certainly he was a contemporary 
of uh, the writings of Ezra and Nehemiah. In fact, uh, John Calvin believed that Malachi was the last name of Ezra. <laughs> that the prophet Malachi was Ezra, his name was Ezra Malachi. <laughs> Uh, some people suggest that this name is more of a title or a nickname, but regardless, what you have here in this book is a prophet who is writing at the same time, more or less, as what you have in what we've been looking at all along here through the series that started at the very beginning of the fall uh, in Ezra, chapters 1 through 10, and then we've looked at Haggai, Zechariah, Nehemiah, and now we uh, complete the series by looking at Malachi. Interestingly enough, 47 of the 55 verses in Malachi are first-person addresses of God to the people of Israel. 47 out of 55 is God speaking in the first person to Israel. So if you ever want to hear directly from God, this is a book to you know, you're going to catch it, right? And let me give you a quick outline so you'll have a sense of where we're headed in three words, okay? I can describe Malachi in three words. And if all you want's the high spot, then you can fall asleep and enjoy the rest of the service. Um, first word, love. We're going to see the love of God. And in some ways, a love that isn't like ours. Second, We're going to see problems. There's going to be six problems that Malachi, uh, that the Lord through the prophet Malachi brings to the people of Israel. And third is the word Jesus, the coming of the Messiah who's going to right every wrong. So love, problems, Jesus. You got it? Can you say that? Love, problems, Jesus. All right, well, let's dive into it in chapter one here, where we learn about God's love for Israel. Um, Isn't it neat that despite all the problems that were going on, and the world being broken and the shadows deepening, God doesn't have Malachi jump on the problems first. Isn't that cool? He starts with his love. That's a beautiful thing. God starts with his love. He says in verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. It's God's nature to love. God's nature is love. Now, by the way, I should add, because we don't understand this today, we have redefined love to be someone who agrees with me. That's what we think love is. You agree with me? Oh, we got a relationship of love. You don't agree with me? Then we don't have a relationship of love. (laughs) Um, There's a lot of times where I'm wrong and God's right, and I'm glad he loves me. Even when we are not necessarily agreeing with one another. And by the way, when I have a disagreement with God, guess who's wrong? I, I am, right? Yeah. And that's part of why the Word of God is so helpful to us because it realigns our thinking to be like the Lord. In fact, the result of a revival, which we all long for, don't we, as believers, is a renewed longing for God's Spirit to pour out the knowledge of His love 
to our hearts, that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the height, length, breadth, width, to know the love of God, love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, Ephesians 3. Now, I imagine more than one person here is saying, yeah, 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 God loves us. And you're kind of taking it either callously or perhaps even cynically, you're doubting God's love. If you're in one of those two categories, let me just address that for a moment. Why do we doubt God's love? First, biggest reason why we can doubt God's love is that we don't know God. Um, if, if you don't know God, you can't know his love. So if you don't have a profound sense of how much God loves you, one first question you ought to ask is, have you known him through the person of Jesus Christ, asking him to forgive you of your sins? Because when you have that relationship with God through Christ, you begin to comprehend his love for you. A second reason why we can doubt God's love is that we're in some way disappointed with God. This was the problem of the Jews of Malachi's day. They had returned from Babylon to the land, <clears throat> but they had not yet obtained all the promises that they expected would be fulfilled immediately. They're like, wait a minute, we got this lame thing, it's not as good as it used to be, and they're just kind of frustrated by all of that, and they're thinking, the problem must be with God, we're disappointed with Him. A third reason why we may doubt God's love is that we experience self-pity. You know, we're asking the question, why aren't things better for me? Why is my life so empty? And as I look at people around me, it seems like they all, it's not true by the way, but you can feel it, that everybody else seems to have their act together and I'm sitting out here all alone a sense of self-pity. Or we experience envy. We look at other people in some way in which they may be prospering and, and we're not and we think that God must not love us like he loves them. Or perhaps we're experiencing great trials in our lives, real hardships. And we begin to doubt as those trials press in on our souls. We begin to doubt God's love for us. Whether it's one of those or any other, I am here to proclaim to you this morning the love of God. The love of God that is something that is in his very nature and goes beyond our comprehension. Let's look at the love as it's expressed here in Malachi. It's the joy of what I term God's electing love. This love that God has for Israel is expressed in his divine election of the nation of Israel. He chose them quite apart from anything they've done. In fact, he chose them not because they were great. He chose them because he chose them. <laughs> this love was expressed in a whole bunch of ways. He gave Israel the scriptures. He gave to Israel the temple, 
where he caused his presence to dwell. He gave them the priesthood by whom they were able to have a relationship of access to God. He gave them the prophets who called them out when they were disobedient and offered promises that were based on God's grace, unmerited favor. He gave them the covenants, the agreements that God had with his people Israel that were inviolable and permanent. And last of all, he promised Israel that there would come a Messiah, a king, who would deliver them from all unrighteousness and bring them into his eternal kingdom. This is God's electing love of Israel. Now, God is happy. He is infinitely happy. And he's happy without people. Did you know that? He didn't create people because there was something lacking in him. There was nothing lacking in God, ever. He would have remained happy had he never made us. He would have remained infinitely happy had he wiped out Adam's race at the time Adam and Eve sinned, or if he had wiped them all out in the flood. But instead of that, out of his love, he set his affections upon particular sinners by his own free choice. This is the love of God. Now, How should that electing love of God comfort us? Well, we should receive it. (laughs) Thank you, God. We don't earn it. We receive it. The second thing is that we should know that our story ends well. If you belong to Jesus, if you've asked him to be your savior, know this. No matter what trial you're going through, no matter what hardship, no matter what anxiety, no matter what brokenness, no matter what shadows are deepening for you, the story will end well because of his love for you. Thirdly, we can experience the love of God in the midst of these trials in the deepest of ways. One of the greatest joys I've experienced as a pastor is to be with some of you at moments of deep trial or challenge or decision in your lives and to watch God's love being poured out on you, giving you a remarkable grace and an ability to thrive in the midst of the deepest trials. I learn so much from you. And the biggest thing I learn is how great God's love is for his people. He loves us. Um, And then lastly, this electing love of God should comfort us because it means that we can learn and change because this love isn't just a love that leaves us where we are or agrees with us. You know, there's sometimes where we reach a point of callousness in our lives where we think about somebody, maybe a family member, and we think, well, they're never going to change. Right? Ever done that? Put your hands on your hips and just said, well, they're never going to change. The love of God is so vast 
that it can do what you think is impossible. And what that means is not just that that person can change. Guess what? You can change. Because of God's love changing you from the inside out to become more and more like Jesus. So you might ask, well, wait a minute. What's all this stuff in verses 3 to 5 of chapter 1 about hate? You know, it says, I've loved Jacob but Esau I have hated. Well, if choosing is a good word for love, rejecting is a good word for hate. Jesus used that, in fact, when he talked about hating one's father and mother and even their own lives. He didn't mean a literal hatred as much as he meant that there was a sense that we should reject as the highest priority our own families or even our own lives for the Lordship of Christ, putting Jesus before anyone else. And so when it says that God loved Israel and hated Esau, it means he put the Jews of Malachi's day before the people of Edom. And we know that this was made even before either one of them, Jacob or Esau, were born. Genesis 25 and Romans 9 teaches us that. And this loving and hating was not personal and emotional, but sovereign and providential. It's not an emotional feeling God has, it's nothing less than God's design. That doesn't mean that all Israelites were godly or had their faith in God. Not all Israelites went to heaven when they died. It also doesn't mean that all Edomites were ungodly and condemned to hell. Although, if you read the history of Edom, you would say, they're a sorry lot. Okay. There likely were Edomites who trusted the God of Israel that we will meet in heaven. God's hatred or rejection of the Edomites demonstrates God's protective care and love for Israel. God protected Israel through incredible losses, and the fact is Edom and the Edomites no longer exist. So that's love. Next word, anybody remember? Problems. Let's look at the problems, and particularly as they relate to the failure of spiritual leaders the problems that uh, any culture faces, any institution faces, in fact, any church faces are most commonly rooted in a problem of leaders. And there are six problems that Malachi, or God actually speaking through the prophet Malachi, addresses to the people of Malachi's day. The first one is in verses six to eight of chapter one. Bad worshipers are so bad at worshiping, they don't recognize how bad their worship is. <laughs> bad worshipers are so bad at their worshiping, they think they're doing great when they don't realize just how bad their worship is. Which helps us understand, by the way, that worship is not about singing quality, is it? It's about the offering of our life to the Lord in worship and, and celebration and surrender. These actions of bad worship reveal the true thoughts of the heart more than words do. The priests of Malachi's day had all the right words. You know, they went through the liturgy just fine. They had all the right words to say. The problem was is that they were really lousy worshipers. 
When they went to sacrifice animals, for example, you know what they were doing? They're looking at the animals and they're going, well, it's just going to be sacrificed anyway. We'll take this sick lamb and we'll offer it. We'll take this one with the broken legs. We'll offer it, right? Look at verse 6, or excuse me, uh, verse, uh, uh, yeah, end of verse 6. How have we despised your name? By offering polluted food on my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. You know, just take it to the, to the civic leaders. Are they going to be really happy about that? Their actions reveal the true thoughts of their heart more than their words do. They had the right words, which is why they're shocked that God says that they're bad worshipers. But what does it mean when you, in Israel's day, when they offered these lame and sick and blind animals in sacrifice? Well, it diminishes the purpose of the offering. If the purpose of the offering was to, in some way, assuage sin, atone for sin, it tells us what we think of our sin. It's not that bad. Uh, The offering of a blind or broken animal diminishes the one receiving the offering, God. It tells us what we think of God. He's, He's not really that important. It diminishes the one giving the offering. It tells, that, tells us how little they understood of the love that we talked about just a few minutes ago. If they had any comprehension of how much God loved them, what kind of animal would they present? And to the extent that the Old Testament sacrifices portend and predict a final offering of God for sin once for all, the gift of Jesus, God's son to sacrifice for our, as the sacrifice for our sins, it diminishes the entire story of redemption in Christ the Messiah. Bad worshipers who don't even recognize how badly they are worshiping. Second problem is in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, the nature of the curse of God upon spiritual leaders. It says, you won't listen, you won't take it to heart to give honor to my name, then I'll send a curse upon you, I'll curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them because you don't lay it to heart. A third problem, verses 8 and 9 of chapter 2 is an indictment on spiritual leaders for their present failures. You've turned aside from the way. Not only have they turned aside, you have caused many to stumble by your instruction. Not only are they turning away from God, they're actually teaching others to turn away from God. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, and so I make you despised and abased before all the people inasmuch you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction." A fourth problem is in chapter 2, verses 11 to 16. We'll take a little bit of time on this one because what was happening was that the people of Malachi's day were replacing God with their wish dreams. Have you ever had something that you think about all the time? You wake up thinking about it, you go to bed thinking about it, and it's not God. It's some wish dream you have. 
something that you see is so valuable and you hold on to it and you coddle it and you, you think about it, you worry over it, you dwell on it. That was what was happening in Israel's day. They were, they were replacing God with their wish dreams. If only, and fill in the blank, this, then I will be satisfied and fulfilled. And there were two ways in which ancient Israel was doing that in chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. The first one was by this living with women who were foreigners who did not follow God. As I mentioned, I don't believe this is really marriage, even though verse 11 translates the word as marriage. Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. What that means is the same issue is in Ezra and in Nehemiah, or, yeah, and in Nehemiah that these guys were living with women who were from other places and they had not decided to become Jewish. Rather, they kept their gods and these guys were going after those women's gods. It was, it was horrific. They were living with them as they pleased. So that's the first problem. Second problem, verse 13. And this second thing you do. Did you catch that? Aren't you glad I can keep track of one and two? Because the Bible says, here's the problem, and here's a second problem, right? This second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. You know, they're weeping and crying and saying, why, isn't the, why is the world so broken? Why is it so bad? Meanwhile, they're offering the blind and the broken lambs, right? But you say, why doesn't he accept it? Verse 14. Look at verse 14 of chapter 2. Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. You see, they had two problems. One was they had a wish dream. Oh, all these other women that are out there, they're better than the one I'm married to. And so they're chasing after these foreign women, not saying you guys are foreign women, by the way, okay? Let's gesture this way. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then the second thing that they're doing is they're abandoning the covenant that they had with their real wife. They're abandoning it. They're throwing away true knowledge. And in verse 13, they're, they're, they're acting like they're repentant, right? They're covering the Lord's altar with tears, but it's not true repentance. It's really just trying to get God to approve of what they want to do. And that's always true with wish dreams. We always think, oh, why isn't God answering my prayer? Well, maybe what you're asking for is idolatrous. You ever considered that as a possibility? True marriages were being trampled on. The people of Israel rebelling and faking their way to God and then indignantly asking God, well, why aren't you pleased? So the Lord's very direct. Verse 14, it says, God's a witness between you and the wife of your youth. Did you know that that's because marriage is a covenant of three parties? Marriage isn't just a covenant you make with your spouse. There's a third party to the covenant, God. 
By the way, the symbols and weddings reflect this nature of a covenant. Now, if you don't have all of these symbols, it doesn't mean you're not married, okay? But these various symbols reflect this idea of covenant. For example, the seating of families on each side is a way in which it's the bringing together of two to one. The joining of hands at the giving of vows, the signing of documents, the exchange of rings as symbols of covenantal love and loyalty, the pronouncement and presentation of the couple, even the cutting of a cake. Did you know that in the Bible they talked about a covenant and the, word, the, the verb that's used of a covenant is to cut a covenant? It means you're cutting the pieces of food and then you share in that meal as a way of saying, we've made a covenant between ourselves and God. The throwing of seed is the blessing of a covenant for fruitfulness. Make this covenant fruitful, God. God's a witness because marriage is a covenant. Verse 14 also says something here that's unique in the Old Testament. It says, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion. Your companion. This is the only time in the Bible where marriage is described this way, as a companionship, a partner. The word is used in the Old Testament to describe friends or men who are united to wage war against injustice or to describe the tribal unity of Israel. But what it means is that there is a relationship of companionship and partnership here. Unlike the peoples around them, one's wife was not a possession to do with as one pleased. Instead, there is a unity, a companionship, a partnership. Now, these were Israel's problems of replacing their wish dreams, replacing God with their wish dreams. And you might say, well, you know, I haven't thrown away my wife for some foreign women, so I guess I'm off the hook here. No, 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 let's think more broadly. What wish dream are you chasing that is not God? Just ask the Lord where you're maybe having some idols of the heart. And we are remarkably clever at self-justification. Remarkably clever. Uh, John Calvin said that our hearts are idol-making factories. We just produce them. And we keep justifying. The next problem, the fifth one, is found in chapter 2, verse 17. Pretending that evil is good. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? You ever thought about what it means to weary the Lord? It doesn't mean that the Lord gets tired. 
It means that the Lord gets to a point where he just says, enough already. He's, he's, he's bored by your pretending, by your fakery, by your thinking that you have him fooled. That's what he's saying here. The Lord says, I'm wearied by this. Isaiah 43, 24, you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. It means that the Lord is patient, but his patience does have a limit. You see, the people of Malachi's day were pretending that evil was actually good, and that wearies God. It causes him to no longer act with patience. There are several ways in which we can do that today. One way that we do it is by saying, everybody's good. Everybody is just fine. Whatever you want to think is just fine for you. Whatever I think is fine for me, we're all good. It's all wonderful. That's the theology of self. And God says, I'm wearied by that. Another way we do it is to say that everybody who does evil is good. We'll redefine it to be good. That's the theology of relativism. Oh, you might think it's evil. I think it's good. It's going to be fine. It's all good. Another one is to say that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. That's the exact phrasing here in Malachi 2. And that's the theology of idolatry. Now, not only are we justifying evil as good in our own hearts, we're saying that's how God thinks. God thinks the same way as I do. That's making up your own God. Saying not only that that evil is good, but that God thinks that the evil is good. Have you noticed as we've been making our way through this book how God will say something and then he'll say, but you say, and he puts a question in Israel's mind. Uh, He puts a question in Israel's lips. Let's look at them for just a second. Chapter one, verse two. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? They're doubting God's love. Chapter one, verse six. It says, O priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? Verse seven of chapter one. By offering polluted food upon my altar, but you say, how have we polluted you? Chapter two, verse 14. You say, why does he not accept favor from our hand? Right? Chapter three, verse seven. From the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes, not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Chapter 3, verse 8. Will a man rob God, yet you're robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? In chapter 3, verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? Do you see how all through this book, God sees that the people of Israel think that they are right in everything and they're protesting their innocence. Well, how have we robbed you? Or how have we profaned you? Or how in the world would you think this? And how do we know that you love us? Do you see that cynicism and that brokenness that is on the part of the people of Israel? 
that they would dare to bring their questions to God in that way. Pretending that evil is good tests God's patience. Now we come to the last one. We rob God when we hold back our money from him. That's chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. It's a shocking thought that a person would rob God. Imagine someone who has given you everything and you snatch away some trifle from him. God says, but you're robbing me. And they're indignant. How have we robbed you? And they're stingy. Look at verse 9. You're cursed with a curse for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Now, in the Old Testament, the tithe was a, was a command. In the New Testament, giving is not compulsory. Everyone should give as the Lord has prospered them in their heart, that God loves a cheerful giver. But note this, please hear me, voluntary giving does not mean optional. Voluntary does not mean, hey, take it or leave it, doesn't matter as though you have both the choice not to participate in giving and the choice to participate in the blessings. If one chooses not to give, that's fine, but don't expect the blessings that come from giving either. There's a kindness expressed here in verse 10 Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test. Remember that Hebrew word na that I talked about that meant please? That's here on that phrase. Please put me to the test, God says. He's offering a way to return to him through their financial giving. Please test me. And the blessing is in the pouring down. I will pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. The pouring of rain and of boundless crops, and this isn't the only place in the Bible that describes that. Deuteronomy 11, Joel 2, uh, 23, 24, 26, 27. Uh, Zechariah chapter 10, Zechariah 14, Zechariah chapter 8, Isaiah 30, Isaiah 44, Isaiah... Um, uh, or Amos chapter 9, Haggai chapter 2. It's, it's, it's all through the Old Testament that there is a, a blessing of boundless crops and of rain that comes, the blessing of no aborted harvests. You not only gain more than you imagined, you also cannot lose what you've gained. And this is a beautiful principle, isn't it? To not just only gain things, but what you have isn't lost. Now, in case you're feeling like, why is he talking about that stuff and getting a little huffy about, you know, that kind of word, I just want you to know there's a scripture just for you. It's Malachi 3, 16 to 18, which are the words of the stingy cynic. 
I leave you to read that when you get home. There's some ways that God keeps the devourer away. These are just things that I've discovered through my life of ways in which uh, when we're generous in our giving to the Lord, that God honors that giving. Eight different ways that I thought of and that I've experienced. One is God can keep your stuff from breaking down. That's kind of cool, huh? God can keep thieves from stealing from you. God can keep the ruler from raising your taxes. God can keep the eaters away. Eaters like locusts or rats or competition. God can bring unexpected fortunes. He can bring new work opportunities. He can grant you favor with your boss or with new customers. And he can give you ideas. You wonder where you get that inspiration? He can give you ideas for new work or for new business. Remarkable. Some took up that challenge in verse 16. I hope you will as well. Okay, so prob, uh, we saw love and problems. Now we come to Jesus, the prediction of a marvelous coming. God's messenger and God himself is going to come. The New Testament gives detail here about the coming of this messenger. In chapter 3, verse 1, I send my messenger, he will prepare the way before me. This is the coming of John the Baptist. Uh, Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 to 14, Luke 1, 17, Luke, 2, or Luke 7, 27, the messenger prepares the way. Literally every gospel has that at the beginning of their gospel, Matthew 3, Mark 1, Luke 1 and 3, John chapter 1, there's a messenger who prepares the way, and it's John the Baptist that's literally the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the Old Testament looks at things really in a flat way. It doesn't see two comings of the Lord. The New Testament unfolds the coming of Jesus as in two comings. The, the Old Testament sees it all as one thing. And so the Lord comes in the person of Christ. He comes to his temple, chapter 3, verse 1. This is fulfilled by the cleansings of the temple in John 2 and Matthew 21 at the beginning, at the end of Jesus' ministry. But then also it may be a reference to his coming in the millennium. Ezekiel 43, Revelation 1, Revelation 14, Haggai chapter 2. I'll shake the heavens of the earth so that the treasures of all nations will come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. So, the prediction of a marvelous coming. First, let's recognize that it's going to be two, as the New Testament reveals, and that John the Baptist is the messenger who brings all that into initiation. It's amazing. Now, it's a scary thing when God actually shows up. Oh, we think, oh man, if we could only see God. Yeah, but if we saw him, we'd be wiped out. Look at verse 2 of Malachi 3. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? The answer is no one. 
No one can survive a lethal dose of divine glory. Who can stand when he appears? Do you remember in Revelation chapter 1, John sees the risen, ascended Jesus Christ. This is the one that he loved. They had a special love relationship. He leaned on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper, and yet when he sees him in all his fullness of glory, he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. It's a scary thing when God actually shows up. Look at the second half of the verse of Malachi 3, verse 2. God does not approve of the evil and the, game, the monkey in games that the Israelites are playing. He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He's, what's a refiner's fire? It removes the impurities of metal. What is a fuller's soap? It cleans what is dirty. And in chapter 4, we see the burning brilliance of God that will provide two different final outcomes. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. The day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evil's doers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. It's a day that's coming. It's not a 24-hour day. It's the day of the Lord. Some see it as the first coming of the Messiah. Others see it as the second. But it seems to me that it refers to all of the events that will bring about the new creation and the kingdom of God in all of its fullness. You might say, well, why, why does he use the word day if it's not a 24-hour day? Well, the word day shows certainty. As certain as the day is long, Jesus Christ will reign. It shows soonness or eminence. It can happen at any time. So the flow of biblical history is aiming toward all the events that are happening. They're all aimed toward this day that is coming. And just as surely as John the Baptist came to prepare the way, that day is coming. It includes the events of the first coming, the second coming of Christ, the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel, the final judgments, the kingdom of God in the new creation. It includes all of that. And it is, on the one hand, a terrible day. Burning like an oven, arrogant and evil will be flammable chaff. The day will set them ablaze. No hope of a comeback. From bottom root to the top branch, complete destruction with no remnant to rebuild. But look at verse 2 of chapter 4. But, but for you who fear my name, those who recognize who God is and act on it, who in faith believing in Jesus as their Messiah, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. This is a beautiful imagery. It's S-U-N, not S-O-N. There's a blazing sun that rises, and it's a sun that has wings, wings of healing. The same image of intense burning, but now... It's a burning with a kind and loving intention. The purity of the white hot sun rising upon God's own beloved people. The same fire that burns judgment also shines righteousness. 
And we actually have that in our Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son, S-U-N, of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. In the late Judean kingdom of Hezekiah, archaeologists have discovered these seals, and on these seals is an image of a sun, and on the sun there's either two or four wings on the sun. It's an image of kingship, the sun of righteousness with healing in its wings. The restoration of God's people completely whole. The result of this healing righteousness, look what it says there in the end of verse two, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall We're like calves that leap, bouncing around the pasture after being let out of the stall. Uh, We have been in the... (laughs) What happens if if you leave cattle in the stall and you don't do anything except feed them? Well, it's going to get pretty stinky, isn't it? And this is what our life is like apart from Christ, imprisoned in the stench of the stall of sin, our own failures being the dung all around us, God shines on us, sets us free, and we bounce out from the stall. It is a picture of freedom and delight. And the first coming of Jesus makes that happen. Another Wesley song, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, mine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. The second coming will be what makes it evident for all to see, and the glorious kingdom of God finalizes the reality for us. The utter victory will be ours. Look at verse 3. You shall tread down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. All evil is finally and forever defeated. And so... In verses 4 to 6, we have our loving God seeking to prepare us for the new creation. God's counsel, remember the law of my servant Moses. It means know and apply the word of God. Then verse 5, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Luke chapter 9, the transfiguration, when Jesus is revealed in his glory, Who is it that's there? Moses and Elijah. And what are they talking about? His departure that he's about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Elijah will bring about spiritual change. We see that it's uh, the harbinger is in John the Baptist. And in Revelation chapter 11, we have these two witnesses of which one may well be Elijah. Prophecy made that 
maybe has been fulfilled and will yet even be fulfilled. And now in verse 6, home is the school of the community, turning the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers. It's a world in miniature where authority, submission, love, loyalty, obedience, and trust can be learned. Fathers recovering their interest in teaching the love of God. Children recovering their interest in learning the love of God. Dear ones, this book is for this hour when the world is breaking, where the shadows are deepening. This book says, first, know the love of God. Second, face your sin, the problems. And third, turn to Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the ages. Let's pray. Oh God, we pray that you would bless us as we think about these things. We thank you for your love for us. Enable us to draw near to you. We repent of sin. And Lord, throughout this day and even this week, bring to mind our own sins. It's not enough for us to say tisk tisk at Israel's. Bring to mind our own and help us to repent. And then, Lord, we marvel at the coming of Jesus to save us. And we marvel at the coming that he will one day set everything right. Through Christ we pray, asking that you might awaken anybody who's never put their faith in Jesus, that they would do so right now. In his name we pray, amen. Would you stand for this benediction? It comes from the last verses of Romans chapter 16. You know, we've been through all these post-exilic books, prophetic writings that, that direct us to Jesus. Hear how the Apostle Paul puts it in this fantastic letter to the Romans. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God. Oh, he's so wise. To the only wise God. Be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, amen.